Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Hey guys, welcome to the Bitcoin Podcast. Today we got a different episode for you. Uh, we got Mike from the Monero Monitor coming on the show because um, we we know that there's a demand for a podcast kind of outlining the specifics of Mimblewimble and um, everything around it. But instead of us doing one ourselves, Mike recently did one that uh, he did a really good job. And, and we just figured we'd rebroadcast re him and introduce our audience to the Monero Monitor uh, podcast. Hope you all like it. Mike, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hey, Corey. Thanks for the uh, nice introduction. So yeah, I'm Mike. As Corey said, I uh, hang out in the Slack channel sometimes for uh, the Bitcoin podcast. If you ever see Big Red Machine hanging around, that's me. And yeah, I've been doing this podcast for maybe nine months or so, uh, maybe going on 10 months at this point. And just try and find little niche things that people aren't necessarily always talking about, sort of how I got started podcasting about Monero in the first place. But Mimblewimble is a uh, pretty cool project. It's um, it's a protocol that will provide a lot of scalability and privacy enhancements for hopefully Bitcoin and Monero and probably anything else that wants to uh, try and implement it. So I find it super interesting, super relevant. And uh, yeah, on this, on this interview, I... Um, you get into a lot of specifics about it and a lot of technicals and things and hope you guys enjoy it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for cross airing it on, uh, on your network, Corey. Yeah. You're the first of, a, of the, of its kind with us just playing someone else's podcast. So I hope this turns out well. And, uh, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know that I would normally agree to it, but, uh, you and I sort of know each other a little bit in, in real life, I guess I'm hesitant to say, but outside of, uh, you know, just being online at least certainly. And, uh, so, that kind of makes me a little more comfortable with this. So so sounds like a plan to me. All right. There you go, people. You heard it first. If you want to get people to like you, you should probably go meet them outside of the internet. <laughs> Who knows, though? Could just be... A, <laughs> could, I could be the anomaly. <laughs> All right. Well, here it is. Hey everyone, this is Mike, and you're listening to the Monero Monitor. One of my biggest motivations for this podcast, and really my interest in Monero in general, is to learn more about efforts that promote uh, improvements to privacy and fungibility in the larger Bitcoin space. Um, I think it's pretty clear from most of my episodes that I believe Monero today is maybe the best option for doing that, protecting you from you know others learning about how you transact, and then also how much wealth you might have. But today I want to talk about a project that uh, has kind of been on my radar lately and isn't necessarily related to Monero but uh, is still related to this larger focus on privacy and might have some ties in with Monero as well. Uh, so that project is called Mimblewimble. There's actually been a lot of chatter about this in Monero channels recently, so some people might have heard of it. Um, but in today's episode, I'm hoping to dive a little deeper and get a much better understanding of, uh, you know, technologically, how does this work and uh, how might it compare to other options that we have with things like Monero or Zcash or whatever. You know, I, I personally 
I, I would say that there's a lot of projects in the space that really bother me today. There's a lot of uh, activity that doesn't seem to be terribly productive. Um, but Mimblewimble, I would say, is one of the few projects that actually does really interest me, and especially projects that haven't quite launched yet. This thing is really probably some of the coolest technology that's out there that's close to being ready to go. And so with all of that in mind, today I'm joined by Andrew Polstra. He's a mathematician at Blockstream and really has kind of been the key person, or at least one of the key people, um, over the last like year and a half in researching and developing Mimblewimble. And so hopefully with today's discussion, we can get a better understanding of what exactly it is, uh, maybe a little bit of where it comes from, and kind of where it's going and how that might impact Monero or relate to just privacy in general in this space. And so with all of that... Andrew, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, as Mike said, I'm a mathematician at Blockstream. I work mostly on privacy and scalability research, um, particularly applied cryptography to improve scalability and privacy. So Monero is certainly a project that I try to keep a close eye on as this new Mimblewimble thing, which I have been spending quite a bit of time researching. Um, I am also a developer for the LibSecP project, which is a crypto implementation that is used uh, for digital signatures in Bitcoin and Ethereum and friends. Um, not that Ethereum is particularly private or scalable, but they uh, they use my code. So um, so that's sort of where I'm coming from. Um, and uh, as it happens, I, I wound up being the face of Mimblewimble in some sense. I gave the first public talk about it and scaling Bitcoin in 2016. Um, and from there, uh, well, as one of the few people involved in, in pushing this forward who has a real name and a real face, people started asking me about it. So I'm I'm always happy to talk about it. It's a very exciting project. Awesome. Yeah. You you mentioned uh, some of the other things that you've worked on. And, and really, I think it's kind of key to note that a lot of what you work on tends to be things that uh, allow Bitcoin to scale in the future um, with people maybe not even realizing it because they don't get hyped up a lot. So you mentioned uh, LibSecP and, you know, without something like that new library that y'all put together, then Bitcoin has a much harder time even handling its current volumes and things. So uh, yeah, I find the work you do to be some of the most valuable work in the space. Um, and that's why I asked you to come on. So I was really glad when you agreed to. So you, you, you kind of alluded to it a little bit, um, that there's an interesting backstory to Mimblewimble. Um, but before we get into that, uh, which I do want to talk about because I think it's a little bit fun, um, can we talk just very high level um, what exactly Mimblewimble is and kind of, you know, if we were to run into somebody on the street, um, what would it be that we would explain to them as uh, the goal of, of a project like Mimblewimble? Sure. So there's sort of two prongs to what Mimblewimble does. The first is the confidentiality privacy aspect of it. Uh, the majority of its privacy comes from something called confidential transactions, which Monero also has, which allows the amount of any transactions to be hidden. And this is uh, this by itself eliminates a lot of extraneous data that ideally the public should be aware of when they're validating transactions, right? The public needs to know that transactions are legitimate. They shouldn't be snooping into everybody's private affairs, or rather, it should be possible for people to have private affairs. And uh, hiding transaction amounts is a big step forward uh, on that front because it means that people um, can move money around without identifying, for example, which part of the transaction corresponds to change and which part is a real transfer. Um, 
it makes things like paychecks, which are big round numbers that happen every week at the same time, less identifiable. Um, it means, for example, that, that when you're paying your rent, your landlord can't trace back and, and see how much you're, how much money you're making. Like, oh, did you get a raise? Maybe your rent should go up kind of thing. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I find that to be one of the most compelling things is that if I pay somebody um, with Monero is a good example that's actually out today, but really anything with confidential transactions, they can't go and trace the other part of the payment that comes back to me, you know, the change part and say, oh, well, how much does this person have? And maybe I want to increase their rent next month or something like that. So I, you know, I, I appreciate that aspect of it immensely, I think. So sorry, I interrupted you though. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but then there are also knock-on effects that also improve privacy. A big one being that you can improve CoinJoin quite dramatically with confidential transactions. Um, so CoinJoin is when different people come together who are doing independent transactions and they decide to combine those transactions into what looks like one big transaction. And when you have transactions where all of the amounts are visible, it's really obvious without a lot of work. It's really obvious what parts of the aggregate transaction correspond to the original transaction. Um, and in particular, it's really obvious what is change um, because you might have a whole bunch of round output values um, and then you have these, these weird uh, numbers with a whole ton of decimal points that are, are clearly just an extra thing that needed to be thrown in there to make the transaction balance out. And that's what changes. Um, and then what Mimblewimble does, the real magic of Mimblewimble, and what distinguishes it from something like Monero, is that it exploits a quirk of confidential transactions algebra to allow transactions to be cut through. And what I mean by that is that if I send some coins to somebody and they pass those coins along, say I, I give some, some money to Mike, and let's say that he just gives it back to me even. So there's a tr two transactions here. There's Andrew to Mike, then there's Mike back to Andrew. The intermediate step where Mike held the coins, Mimblewimble allows that to be completely deleted from the blockchain. And in fact, if we do this before anything hits the blockchain, that intermediate step doesn't even hit the chain. So it just looks like I sent money to myself. And this is not only a good thing for privacy, uh, which I, I can talk about more later on, uh, but this also greatly improves the scalability of the system. What it means is that for somebody trying to verify the entire history of the system, unlike in Bitcoin or Monero or something where you have to download every historic transaction and basically replay them to see that the current state of the chain is correct, in Mimblewimble, you can take the blockchain, essentially treat it as one enormous transaction where originally all of the money was in the hands of the miners, and now it's in the hands of whoever has it now. And of course, in real life, the money changed hands you know, a thousand or a million times between the coins being mined and the coins winding up where they are now. But verifiers don't need to check that. All they need to check is for each original transaction, just a single digital signature. So just one signature, and it's not even signing anything. It's just signing its own public key. And so basically what Mimblewimble achieves is compressing all of these transactions into these single public keys and these single signatures that don't really identify anything at all about what the original transaction looks like, how many inputs it had, how many outputs it had, what those outputs were shaped like, and so on and so forth. All of that just goes away. Awesome. 
I'm glad you bring up cut through without me even, uh, you know, really asking about it the way I've kind of always pictured this. Um, and, and this comes from me having previously taught high school algebra. Um, and, and I know that obviously the math is more complex, but at the same time, it sort of takes advantage of the same algebraic, um, manipulations is that if you, if you pictured an equation, uh, and on both sides of the equal signs, you had lots of different things that could all reduce down or cancel out. Some people like to say, um, and so you might have like plus four B minus four B plus two B minus three B plus five B on one side. And then on another side, you might have a bunch of other stuff, um, in my mind, I always think of it as you can kind of just reduce all of that down to, okay, what's, what's the most simple state of this, of this, uh, you know, end state. And so we would have all of our inputs to it being, you know, all the, all the Coinbase transactions that the miners mine. And then all of, uh, the, uh, the other side of the equation is just what's the current state of, uh, of the current coin holding. So, you know, anybody that currently holds a certain number of coins is going to be on that side. Um, and anybody that used to all got canceled out. Is that, is that kind of the general idea? Yep, absolutely. Um, yeah, I remember a term from uh, grade nine or sometime in high school, we had a telescoping sum, which is a, a sum with a whole bunch of terms. And then each of the terms kind of match up and you can cancel them out. And what's left is just like be the first term, the last term, something like that. Yep. And the equivalent still holds, you know, whether it's the complicated version or the or the simple version. Yes, exactly. That's the critical thing. And in fact, it's pretty much exactly the same. The complexity comes in is that the, the word addition here, rather than it meaning adding two numbers the way that it would in high school here, it means some elliptic curve operation. But it's an elliptic curve operation that we can think of as addition because it retains all of these algebraic properties that addition has. So really, conceptually, it's exactly the same stuff um, that you learn in, in high school algebra. Yeah, cool. Okay, so I want to dive more into the privacy stuff. But before we do that, let's uh, we kind of teased it earlier. Let's tell the story about where all this came from. Um, you are not the original person behind all this. Um, it, back in, I believe it was July of last year of 2016, a guy, my understanding of the story is a guy who went by the name of Tom Elvis Jedusor, which is an important name we can get to. Um, but he just popped into Bitcoin IRC or Bitcoin Wizards or something and just plopped a white paper down. Is, is that about right? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Um, and I can say a little bit more. Let me, let me try to give a bit of context for this. Sure. Um, this is not the first time in the history of cryptocurrency that some anonymous researcher has shown up and, uh, and just dropped something in the middle of nowhere. Um, so Monero, uh, as you know, is based off of Bitcoin, which was some bizarre pre-mine scam. But Bitcoin had this innovation, this ring signature, which is sort of the core, uh, core thing that, Min that Monero has that it uses for its privacy. This ring signature, or at least the original one that Bitcoin used, now Monero uses ring CT, which is, uh, has much better privacy properties. The original one was invented by somebody named Nicholas Van Saberhagen. And all three parts of that name are, uh, are different nationalities. I mean, that is a French, German, uh, Dutch combination name. This is not a real person. We can't find any evidence that there is a real person behind there. So that was way back in December 2012. Um, and that's something that led to a real system, Monero. So, it, you know, the, the interesting thing is it's dated as December 2012. Uh, but it, there's actually a lot of evidence that that paper was actually written um, either late 2013 or early 2014. Uh, and so that oh. that's actually a, a story that I don't think has been covered very well by 
people like Coindesk or, or, you know, something like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, to add to the scam and the bizarre pre-mine, um, <laughs> there, there's a whole lot of, uh, evidence that, uh, the, the signature on that white paper was faked. Um, and that it was, you know, signed with software that didn't even exist in 2012. So, um, yeah, that's a whole nother can of worms that I would love some investigative journalist to get into. Maybe I can at some point in time have time to put together a story on it. But uh, yeah, anyway, so that that does, I think, set some precedents for what happened here with Mimblewimble, though, which I think you were about to say. Yeah, so that's very, I did not know that. So that's spooky, because my next example is basically a direct precursor to Mimblewimble. This is something called OWAS, One-Way Aggregate Signatures, OWAS. This was uh, a white paper that never was implemented anywhere. It was published by a person under the name Horas Juan Muton, which is my best pronunciation of that. Uh, this is an anagram of anonymous author. Okay. This was published on Bitcoin Talk in September of 2013. And what this allowed to do was it used pairing-based cryptography to structure transactions in a way that they could be non-interactively combined and cut through, which is exactly what Mimblewimble does using confidential transactions. So this paper predated confidential transactions. The transactions that it had had explicit amounts in them. It did not hide the amounts, and it didn't exploit any quirk of or amount-hiding uh, crypto to do this. It just invented a whole new thing, a whole new signature type that allowed uh, well, one-way aggregation. It allowed signatures to be combined uh, in such a way that you couldn't then pull them apart. So this was a very interesting white paper when it first appeared. It didn't get a whole lot of attention, the big reason being that it used pairing-based cryptography, which at the time and, and even now is quite slow to implement in practice with a high enough security parameter. Um, so pairings, pairings are, are, they let you do a whole ton of cool stuff, but people rarely do because it turns out in practice for something on the scale of a cryptocurrency, they're just not, not very usable. So apparently that... Uh, happened around the same time that the Van Saberhagen paper actually seems to have appeared, which is an interesting bit of history. Yeah. Um, but then, uh, I guess, well, we're, we're several years later now, uh, three years later, in August 2016, when uh, our friend Tom Elvis Jedusor showed up, he signed on to the Bitcoin Wizards IOC channel under the name Major Player from an IP address that is somewhere outside of Los Angeles. And he showed up, it was, I believe, 2 a.m. UTC. Um, so I'm, I'm here in Texas. I guess that's like 10, 10 p.m. Um, and I guess 8 p.m. in California, if you want. And uh, he posted a link. He said something like, oh, I had this idea for improving Bitcoin. Uh, some friends of mine said that this channel would be interested. So here you go. And then he posted a link. It was a dot .onion link uh, to a Tor hidden service that was just a plain text white paper. It was just a plain text file with a bunch of algebra in it. And it was very poorly written. It seemed to have, like, like it, it seemed to be written by a French person, I guess. Uh, there are a couple of reasons we think that, that maybe you want to go into. Um, and then he disappeared. He dropped this link, he signed off, and went away. And it wasn't until the next morning that anybody really noticed this, I think. Myself and Brian Bishop, uh, who's also here in Austin with me, um, opened up the link, downloaded it, checked that it was actually a text file and not some weird malware or something, and rehosted it. Yeah, and it's rehosted, I think, on uh, mimblewimble.org. Uh, so I'm actually looking at it right now. So if anybody does want to go and see what we're talking about, you can just log on to mimblewimble.org. The, the .org or .cash? 
Uh, it might be a .cash as well, but it's certainly a .org. Okay, cool. It's it's funny because we've never heard from this person since, right? That is correct, yeah. And or or at fact, least as far as we know, maybe they have a different name now or something. <laughs> yeah, they could. So what's interesting or frustrating, depending on how you look at it, there isn't really any way to... Uh, to figure out that this is him. He didn't leave a cryptographic key or anything like that. The only possible way that he could identify himself would be by the key used in the Tor hidden service that he was hosting the file on. And that hidden service went down, uh, I guess, several weeks after the paper was dropped, once it had been rehosted in a million other places. So at this point, that server is down. Uh, I don't know what key was used. I didn't think to download the public key or anything. Yeah. Um, well, I guess the URL is a public key in Tor, so, so maybe we don't, don't need anything more than that. But that would be his only way, really, of identifying himself, would be to rehost something on the same Tor service. Yeah, which, you know, maybe that was the whole point, um, that th- this person didn't leave a public key so that we would never know who it was. Yeah. I don't know. I, I find it interesting. But then, so then the name, <laughs> and I think this might be why you, this might be at least one clue why we, some people think he's French. Um, Tom Elvis Jedusor is an important name uh, for, I would say, my generation. I think you and I are about the same age, so our generation. Um, because for for English speakers, you might not recognize it. Um, but if I were to say the name Tom Marvolo Riddle, uh, people might recognize it. Um, and so Tom Elvis Jedusor is the French name of Lord Voldemort in the Harry Potter books. And uh, so that that's the first clue, I think, for why he might be French. Is there other clues as well? Um, yep. So one other one is that he used the word voila in the middle of his paper. Although he used the word voila, but he used the wrong accent uh, on the A at the end of voila. So that's either evidence that he made a typo or uh, or was only pretending to be French. And the other evidence that I have is just in the way that the paper is written. Um, so I, I grew up in Canada. There is a lot of, lot of French speakers on TV. The prime minister for most of my childhood was a native French speaker, and there, there are certain mannerisms that uh, that you learn to recognize, or, or ways of speaking and, and idioms and stuff that French speakers have. That this paper seemed to uh, seem to project that same style of speech. So that's really that's really my evidence to just the writing style. Interesting. I guess I should go ahead and say this. A few of my listeners know that I actually am part French Canadian, um, and oh. I will go ahead and say that I am not uh, Tom Elvis Jedusor. I, yes. I didn't know that part of the uh, of of the story. So, um, yeah, this is an interesting coincidence. But um, yeah, so you, you know, it's funny because then people have kind of taken this whole uh, Harry Potter theme, which actually Mimblewimble itself comes from Harry Potter. Um, it's the, I believe it's like the tongue tying curse or something. So it's, it's the curse that keeps people from being able to tell secrets. And so I suppose that's where this, this, uh, name for the protocol came from, but, uh, people have kind of embraced the whole Harry Potter aspect of it and run with it a bit. Uh, and so at the end of this, um, we can maybe talk a little bit about some of that stuff, um, because there's a whole altcoin being developed and all, but, uh, I don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time focusing on that. But yeah, it, I mean, it, it's funny because even we can expand this whole Harry Potter metaphor a little more. I mean, it, it really seems like Mimblewimble was little baby Harry Potter dropped on your doorstep, um, that you then had to nurture to where it is. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of, that's, that's the origin story of Harry Potter himself. I just find that to be a, an interesting quirk. Um, but what, what made you, when you read this paper, what made you decide, Hey, I'm going to chase this down and work on it. Uh, so I am one of the, uh, co co-authors, co-inventors, what have you of confidential transactions, 
which Mimble Wimble is heavily based on. Um, Confidential Transactions was originally Greg Maxwell uh, and Peter Wooler and Adam Back. And I developed an extension to that called Confidential Assets, which wound up being announced several months after Mimblewimble was public, but I had actually developed it several months before, which is a way to do confidential transaction-like hiding, but for a multi-asset blockchain, meaning that you can have transactions where multiple distinct types of things are happening. So like in a sidechain situation, you might have Bitcoin and Monero both moving on the same blockchain. And, and not only are the amounts hidden, but also the asset type, also whether it's Bitcoin or Monero is hidden. And the result is you can't tell what transaction are Bitcoin ones or Monero ones. You can't even tell if there's a transaction that's swapping them. It's just very, very good privacy in that sense. So what I had been looking at in order to do this was I took a specific part of what's called the Peterson equipment, which is the way that we encrypt the amount in all of these transactions. I take one part of it that we call the second group generator, which is a technical term that's not too important. I, I thought, what if we reinterpreted that group generator as an asset type? So instead of being a fixed thing, we'll have a different one for every single asset. And in fact, we can have a different one for every single output, and it will just be a reblinded, somehow encrypted form of a, a real well-defined asset type. So what Tom Elvis Jedusor did was he took another piece of this called the blinding factor, and he said, well, what if we reinterpreted that blinding factor as a signing key and use that for authentication instead of having a script system? So it was sort of a similar, um, sort of a morally similar extension of confidential transactions as something I had been thinking about, at least on the algebraic level. And what he did with it was, of course, dramatically different from just adding different asset support. Um, so it was, it was something that I had been working on, at least algebraically, so I was able to pick up very quickly what he was, was thinking or what he was describing, I should say, um, because it wasn't, it wasn't totally clear. If you re read the original white paper, uh, I mean, the English is not super great and the algebra is not super fleshed out, but I was able to see what he was doing because I was, I was very familiar with that. Yeah, in fact, I think there was even a, uh, like a small error at one point in the algebra in the, in the paper, or there was some type of... Um, you know, mislabeling or something, but I, you've developed your own white paper now that kind of explores this a lot deeper, uh, I believe, right? Yeah, so a couple months after the Voldemort paper dropped, I wrote my own white paper that I published at Scaling Bitcoin Milan in 2016. Um, at this point, I kind of wish that I had taken a different tack with that. So what uh, I was doing was at the end of the, um, at the end of Voldemort's white paper, he had three open questions. The first one was kind of a denial of service prevention thing. What if somebody uh, gives you the wrong final UTXO set and you have to download the whole blockchain, it turns out to be wrong, and you throw it out and replace it? How do we solve that? And it turns out we were able to solve that question pretty quickly on Reddit, just going back and forth trying to, to make other parts of the system work properly. But there are two other questions which were quite important. One was asking... Well, these transaction kernels, these public keys and signatures that have to stick around forever, is there any way that we can compress those and make those go away? And the third question he asked was, is there any way that we can add script support? 
Um, can we somehow get smart contracts? Can we get lightning? Can we get atomic swaps? And so on. So the white paper that I wrote a few months afterwards focused on the second question about scalability. How can we compress out these kernels? And I found a way to do this using pairings, our old friend from OWASP way back when. A very aggressive way that allowed the blockchain to shrink not only from like 80 gig to 15 gig, as Voldemort had done, but from 15 gig down to like one megabyte, which was a very exciting development. But we depended on pairings now. And it also has some really bad ergonomic properties. It involves transactions that would expire, like they would become invalid if they didn't get into the next block kind of thing. And later, we realized that there's no way to get these kind of transactions to work with scripting. So that, that this is the main reason that I'm not really a big fan of that old white paper, is that I later found a way to answer Voldemort's third question about scripting. And maybe we'll get into that a bit later. But it turns out it's possible by tweaking these kernels in a certain way to, uh, to add non-trivial conditions onto transactions. And my original white paper, which compressed out these kernels, they made them go away and compress into a megabyte, eliminated that ability because the kernels are no longer there. So I'm no longer very interested in, in the stuff that I developed there. So it's unfortunate that this white paper was where I tried to formalize the Wimble itself, and it's all mixed in with this thing I call thinking signatures. So like most of the white paper I don't really like, um, and I wish I, <laughs> I wish I had done two separate papers, one that had formalized Mimblewimble the way that we think about it now, which is basically true to, to what Voldemort originally proposed, and a separate one with the thinking signatures, which are kind of their own thing. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, but part part of it is that like you're right on the edge of the kind of where technology is with all this blockchain stuff, and so you're going to come up with ideas that sound great for a while, and then you realize, hey, there's a, actually a much better way to do this. So I wouldn't say you should uh you should be upset with yourself for how that came about or anything like that. But uh, I want to I want to build off a little more of some of the things we've talked about. I want to touch on some of these scriptless scripts that you've alluded to, or how you do scripts with Mimblewimble. But before we get to that, um, can we talk really briefly a little more in depth about what a transaction might look like? So let's say I'm looking at my full node and watching traffic come through, or let's say I'm looking at like a block explorer um, and some other people that I don't know do a transaction. What do I see? Because in Bitcoin, you know, I see here's the origin and it's an address and here's the destination and it's another address and here's the change and that's that. And we already talked about how the amounts are going to be hidden. Um, but but in from what I understand about Mimblewimble, the, the whole transaction itself is just completely different. Um, and so can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm first going to answer your question for what, what if you're looking at a block explorer? What if you're just downloading Mimblewimble blocks, which now have a whole pile of transactions in each one? What do you see? And what you will see is essentially a whole bunch of transaction inputs and a whole bunch of transaction outputs and a whole bunch of transaction kernels, which we remember are those public keys that, that really have the heart of the transaction in them. Uh, and there's nothing really linking these things together. So maybe these original transactions had a whole bunch of inputs that, that were destroyed and a whole bunch of outputs were created the way they would be in, in uh, Bitcoin or in Monero or what have you. But by the time they get into a block, because the transactions are structured such that there's nothing really tying those things together, the miner just puts all of the inputs into a pile and all the outputs in a pile and all the kernels in a pile. And the kernel retains the ability to cryptographically uh, enforce that the transaction hasn't been tampered with in any way. But 
the public validators don't really see that. All they see is that the kernel is valid, and they therefore infer that all of the inputs and outputs that wound up in the block are also valid, because they couldn't be there unless there was some valid kernel making them work out. Yeah, and so then what that means then is if if I am looking at these inputs, outputs, and kernels, I might have 10 kernels that match 10 different transactions that were all cut through, and there's only maybe three inputs and six outputs, and there's no way for me to kind of like point to, oh, this kernel matches that input to that output. But in general, I can look at all of the kernels together and say, this is a valid state of the blockchain. Is that about right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that hits on an important point, which is that you may not even see all of the inputs and outputs that exist because some of them are cut through. Yeah. Um, but you, you still know that, that whatever inputs and outputs existed, they were spent legally. Like maybe an output existed and then the person who owned it spent it. Well, they, they had to have done that for the whole thing to work out. Sure. Now, what if I'm, what if I'm NSA or, you know, Interpol or something, and I've set up a bunch of nodes that log all of the information that they see passing through the network. Can they, in doing that, be able to break back apart? Like, okay, well, here are the actual inputs and outputs and how they match to each other. Or is that still going to be something that's difficult to achieve? Um, so that would be difficult to achieve is the short answer. So in the uh, the way that I described this, I had the miners collecting transactions and just throwing all of their inputs and outputs into a pile. I'm sort of assuming that the transactions themselves are coherent blobs that are on the network. Yeah. And actually for uh, for peer-to-peer topology uh, denial of service reason, that actually helps if the transaction themselves have some sort of signature or something that's binding them together so they can't be merged before they're in a block. And so that means that anybody who's listening on the network and sees all of the transactions and uh, has, has a global view of the network, I should say, because it's not necessarily true that all the transactions are flooded the way they are in Bitcoin, um, then they would be able to see the original transaction. And what they would know is which inputs go to which outputs. Now, in Bitcoin and in Monero, uh, well, first I'll say Bitcoin. Monero is a bit more interesting. In Bitcoin, every output has an address on it. And you can look at that address, you can see the amount, and, and that's got a lot of information about what the output is. In uh, Mimblewimble, there is no address at all. Every output is only the amount, and the amount itself is bound up in this Peterson commitment object, which is just a uniformly random curve point. Any curve point is as likely as any other curve point. Um, so it really doesn't have any identifying information. And Monero achieves something similar. So Monero does have addresses, and it does have something that looks like an address that lands in the blockchain, but it uses stealth addresses, meaning that the person who sends money sort of derives a new uniformly random address for every transaction, and the address that maybe was published on the internet or something never hits the blockchain. There's no association between the final transaction and what a public address looked like. So, so the result is actually very similar. In both Monero and in Mimblewimble, you have outputs that are essentially uniformly random objects that don't really have much information at all in them. Yeah, so in my mind, I kind of picture it as if you took Monero and you got rid of the ring part of Monero and all you had was the confidential transactions and you had the stealth addresses, you would be hiding... Um, who it is that's receiving it, and then kind of in turn, uh, maybe you don't know when they then turn it around, you don't necessarily know who that is that's sending it, um, and you're hiding the transaction amounts, but 
um, in Monero, at least you've got a blockchain that has a permanent history and you can do like a graph analysis of, okay, well, we don't know what this address is and we don't know what this other address is and we don't know what this third address is, but we can see that all three of those things were spent inside of a single transaction. And uh, so therefore we would know that all three of those things belong to the same person. And that's where the ring part of Monero becomes a big important factor is that then it hides, okay, where was that origin of a, of a transaction? It sounds to me like if, if somebody had a really good way of snooping on the Mimblewimble network, they could maybe do that same type of graph analysis of, of being able to say, okay, well, there's these three different transactions that their inputs all got spent and sent to this other output. And we don't know who these inputs are and we don't know who those outputs are, but we can at least tie them together. Is that is that kind of about right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so in, in Mimblewimble, uh, an omniscient observer, somebody who's watching all the transactions go by from the start, would be able to do this kind of graph analysis, which is made much more difficult by Monero's ring signatures. But in both Monero and in any Mimblewimble implementation, there's still hope here. So there's a technology called Value Shuffle that was developed by Tim Ruffing and Pedro Marino Sanchez. And this allows you to coin join confidential transaction uh, transactions, meaning that you can have two transactions that have you know inputs that go into certain outputs, and you can combine those. And now you have a whole bunch of inputs and a whole bunch of outputs, and there's nothing mapping any of them to any others because remember, they're uniformly random now. It's not like in Bitcoin where some are round numbers and some are not, and some have addresses that are on the internet and some don't right. and all that. Um, and that gets you very similar properties to the... Um, to the Mimblewimble situation in blocks, where you've just got a whole bunch of inputs and a whole bunch of outputs and nothing really linking them together. Yeah. Um, and Value Shuffle is an interactive protocol. The miners can't just do this themselves the way that they can in Mimblewimble in blocks. But if the participants are online and they're willing to do this, then they can absolutely do this and get dramatically stronger privacy yeah. uh, than they otherwise would against this kind of transaction graph analysis. Yeah, you know, th- this actually brings up an interesting reason um, why I, I think Monero happens to be better than another coin that claims to be a privacy coin, um, Dash, which has something that is, it's not value shuffle, but it, it tries to a, a achieve the same goal with their coin, coin join implementation. Um, and and th- when I hear coin join, and this is why I don't like Dash, um, and, and you, I would love to hear your input on this. When I hear about coin join implementations that require um, active participants, I always worry that that is something that can be Sybil attacked by somebody who wants to unmask someone. So for instance, let's say that um, I knew that you were going to be sending Adam back a transaction and I, for some reason, had a desire to know about that transaction and where it was. If I know you're going to be doing that, then I can try and Sybil attack the active coin shuffling going on and basically be, I don't know, 85% 85% or 90% of the participants for the next half hour in coin shuffling. And in doing so, I can kind of unwrap what's going on with the coin shuffling because I now know all of the parts that were my parts and there's just not a whole lot of other parts left. Um, is that something to actually be worried about? Uh, and and is there anything that, that Mimblewimble is, you know, do, do I need to consider that when I'm thinking about something like a value shuffle? Yeah, um, so there are a couple parts to that. One is that the, uh, the, there's sort of an inherent anti-symbol, anti-symbol uh, property to CoinJoin, which is that as long as a transaction is actually completed and sent to the network, 
that requires a Sybil attacker to put up some coins um, and actually spend them. And they can only do that so many times at once because they only have so many outputs to spend. Right. Um, and the, the worry that you have then is, well, what if somebody joins a coin join? They join with somebody, but they don't finish the final stage. They just back out. And that way they can reuse their outputs a whole bunch of times. Uh, and they aren't limited in any way. And value shuffle uh, gives you the ability to detect this, detect who is screwing around, and to eject just those people. Eject just the inputs that were that belong to the participant who didn't complete the protocol properly. So you you have this inherent anti-sybil or I should say sybil resistance caused by the fact that there's only so many outputs in the world and you have to tie up some of them uniquely to deal with or to to join in a coin join. The other part is that although this is some sybil resistance, it's obviously not the strongest thing in the world. If you have a low volume coin join system. It's still as possible to become 80 or 90 percent of the participants. Right. In that case, basically, the privacy of the real participants reduces to that of what it would be without CoinJoin, uh, which is just the confidential transaction, which is just uniformly random things went in, uniformly random things went out. So there is still some. Uh, so this is still pretty good privacy, and there is still some benefit to the CoinJoin in the sense that. This person is now de-anonymized to the specific Sybil attacker, maybe as NSA or something, but they aren't de-anonymized to anybody else who isn't privy to the NSA's information. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kind of look at it as like in Monero, they, and Zcash too, um, the optimization there is to um, basically not even allow these type of targeted attacks to happen. And in doing so, ensure privacy for 100% of the people. It sounds to me like in Mimblewimble, it's saying, well, if some rich actor really wanted to try and target an individual person, they might be able to squeeze out a little bit of information about them. But other than that rich actor doing this, basically you're going to have a chain that is completely opaque to information on it uh, if you've implemented something like Value Shuffle. And and so to me, that means that like we have maybe 99% of the privacy with this as we might have, or maybe 95% or something. I don't know what the percent is as what we might have with Zcash or Monero. But the trade-off then is that we have far better scaling and potentially other benefits as well. Is that kind of a fair, a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's hard to quantify this stuff. Um, but, but yes, that's exactly it. Uh, the, the scalability wins are just so enormous here uh, that that's, that's really the value proposition for Mimblewimble. Um, and I, I should say this isn't entirely a um, just like a pure trade-off, like, oh, we've got to sacrifice privacy so it's a bit more efficient. What we've seen, for example, with Zcash is that to use Zcash's strong privacy features, you have to make transactions, these so-called shielded transactions that involve uh, producing a, a general zero-knowledge proof that you're updating a cryptographic accumulator in some way. And producing these transactions, I think initially there were some horrible numbers I heard, like 10 or 20 minutes, but now it's down to just one or two minutes. Yeah, and I think that they have something in the pipeline that's supposed to make it a little more efficient than that, but yeah. Okay, that's great news, but with these multi-minute uh, transaction production times, it's in practice, nobody uses shielded transactions. Only like 1% or 2% of all Zcash transactions are shielded because people are not producing them because it's too expensive to do on a phone. It's too expensive for an exchange to do 100,000 times a day. So there really is value in making this stuff more scalable because with all of this technology, the more users you have, the better your privacy is. 
because if you want to be hidden, you you need to hide in a crowd. Right. You can't uh, you can't be the only person wearing a mask in the middle of a field. You're not you're not helping yourself at all by doing that. Right. And you know the other thing that I'll throw into this whole into this whole discussion is that the scalability aspect of that becomes so important when you consider that something like Zcash or something like Monero, you really only benefit from the full privacy of it if you're running your own node. And in order to run your own node with those two technologies, you have to maintain the entire history of the blockchain and you have to, you know, deal with all of all of the management of the data and the management of the throughput of the data. Um, and with Mimblewimble, what I find just fascinating about it is... I can start up a new node and almost instantly have a fully synced node because I don't need to know all of that history. And then I can turn it off and two days later, turn it back on and can instantly basically just do like sort of the equivalent of a single block update to now have another fully synced and fully validated node, Um, which means then that this is something that could be run on your smartphone without taking up a lot of computational power or a lot of storage um it's something that could maybe even be run on like its own little hardware device um but as a full node instead of just as a wallet uh and so you know it's it gets back to then what you're saying where you end up with a much larger anonymity set because you can have so many more people actually running these full implementations of the software rather than relying in in Monero's case on something like my Monero or on a remote node or something like that. Um, And so, you know, it it made this trade-off, but at the same time, maybe that trade-off actually still ends up being better from a privacy standpoint anyway, which is interesting. Yeah, I agree with almost everything you said. The the big, uh, I guess the the big thing that's too optimistic right now is this comment about um, instant it's not quite instant. It's still slow. It still requires a bit of time. The big reason is that every output in Mimblewimble, so outputs that are spent just go away. That's great. You don't have to think about it. Um, but every output that uh, is unspent at the time that you validate it, so maybe you're syncing after a couple of days and you miss all of the transactions that happen in those days, that's great, and you only see the final state. Yeah. Each of those final outputs is still there, and it has what's called a range proof hanging off of it. And this is a way to prevent the encrypted amount from effectively being negative. Because without these range proofs, with the possibility of creating negative outputs, the system just wouldn't work. Yeah. It would be possible, for example, to put one, one uh, Monero into a transaction and create two outputs. One of them had 11 Monero and the other had negative 10. And of course, that's going to add up. 11 plus negative 10 does equal 1. But you've created 11 Monero out of thin air because you're, you're just going to delete the, the negative output, of course. Right, right. Um, so to prevent that, we have this thing called a range proof, which right now is on every confidential transaction in, in Liquid or Elements, where it was first created, or in, uh, in Monero as yeah. part of RingCT. And in any Mimblewimble implementation, you also need these range proofs. So right now, those are pretty hefty to verify. They, uh, they're the equivalent of, I mean, let's say that we're, we're doing 64-bit range proofs. We're having numbers between 0 and 2 to the 64. The result is something like... Uh, 100 signature verifications in time. So on my system, for example, it takes about 8 milliseconds per output to validate these range proofs. And the range proof is going to be something like 4 or 5 kilobytes in size. Okay. But there is some exciting news on this front. So if we want to be able to be running full nodes on smartphones and all of that good stuff, we really need to deal with the size and the verification time of the range proof. So another project that I've been working on uh, in conjunction with Dan Bonet and uh, Jonathan Boodle and Benedict Boons 
who are the real real masterminds behind this. All I, all I do is write code on this project. But the project is <laughs> the project is called Bulletproofs. And this is a way to make these range proofs much more efficient. And there are two pieces to this. The first is that for individual range proofs, this five kilobyte size goes down to about 750 bytes with a massive space decrease. Yeah. But it's better than that. Um, for individual transactions in something like Monero, where it's already known which outputs come from the same transaction, you can combine these range proofs and the resulting combination is only logarithmic in the size of the, the number of range proofs that you add. So I said that one range proof was 750 bytes. Well, to put two of them together, you can do that with only 64 extra bytes, not okay. another 750. Okay. And it's logarithmic, so every time I double it, there's another 64 bytes. So suddenly you can do like, if you've got a transaction with like 100 range proofs, you can put all of that stuff together, and the whole thing is only a couple kilobytes versus you know 100 times 5 kilobytes, which is what it would be otherwise. So the, the space savings is absolutely dramatic. Yeah. Um, it, it's incredible here. The verification time, unfortunately, does not shrink so dramatically, but it, it does shrink dramatically. So I mentioned that a 64-bit range proof would take around 8 milliseconds on my computer. On the same computer, I can do a 64-bit bulletproof range proof and that takes something like two and a half, uh, I think 2.2 milliseconds. So for a single output, there's about a 3.5 times improvement. And, uh, and once again, if I combine outputs, I get uh, even more than three and a half times. It'll go up to four and then like 4.1 and, and, and so on. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not super great. It will eventually plateau, but it's still a pretty dramatic performance improvement. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard people uh, in the Monero Research Lab talking about how, you know, I think you alluded to it too. This is also going to benefit Monero. And, and I assume anything else that uses confidential transactions as well, um, where transactions will be much smaller and verify. I think in Monero's case, they said a little bit faster. It sounds like you're saying in some other cases, it might be quite a bit faster. Yeah, so that's uh, the numbers that we're hearing out of the Monero Research Lab are not as dramatic as mine, but that's purely an engineering facet. Okay. Um, like I, I think that if we did enough of the background structural work, um, in particular, there's something called the multi-exponentiation algorithm that we have in libsecp, uh, Bitcoin's library, for, for unrelated reasons, for aggregate signatures, which yeah. is something we're hoping to build for Bitcoin. If you have an algorithm like that uh, and a few other... Uh, optimizations that I've developed for Bulletproof, so you should be able to get similar performance numbers, um, similar improvement. I would expect we can get two to three times uh, just with extra engineering effort. Okay. But, uh, I mean, I mean, don't go like like uh, bugging, serang, and smoothing. Andrew said you could get three times. So. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but I'm cautiously optimistic that these are realistic numbers that we could have in Monero at some point. Yeah, and, and you know, what's interesting with Monero is so much of the development uh, over the last few years has been focused on getting something that is usable and maximizes privacy and sort of at the expense of, okay, we're not trying to optimize this yet. Uh, and uh, it seems like, especially with some of the things the Monero Research Lab is doing and with the code base getting a little more fleshed out in terms of what, you know, Ring CT looks like and things, um, in the future, I think that those optimizations can start to happen. And so, uh, you know, maybe maybe Monero starts to get that as, as time goes on. Um, do, do you then, it sounds like, do you spend much time conversing with Monero Research Lab guys or uh, are you just, is it just more like an in-passing thing? 
Um, from time to time, I'll show up in the Monero Research Lab channel. It used to be they had their own private IRC server, um, and I was invited into that, and then I lost my credentials or something. I forgot how to get in, so I stopped. But now that they've moved to Freenode, so now I can actually idle there. Um, so I, I keep a half an eye on what's going on in the Research Lab channel. My main focus is on confidential transactions uh, and the hard crypto stuff. So they, they spend a lot of time talking about cool things, I'm sure, are on this podcast, things like uh, like how is a blockchain structured? Can we use use any of these like threading or braiding or whatever optimizations and uh those i don't i don't think too much about that that's not really my focus right but whenever something like bulletproofs or something like ring ct shows up then uh certainly i'm in touch with them and, and trying to make sure that we're sharing ideas uh, and nobody's making silly mistakes that, that just need a couple extra eyes yeah that's good because you know one one thing i guess because this whole industry is so new there's there's like the the ledger um journal but they're really a lot of what goes on is just heavily reliant on white papers and um, all of the different developers kind of peer reviewing each other informally. Uh, and, uh, you know, I come from an academic background where peer review is very formal. Um, and uh, so it's always interesting to me to, to see how this is a little bit different than, than say maybe something you'd see in science or, you know, in medicine or something like that with how all of the peer review works. So it's good to hear that, uh, you know, you and and I know Greg Maxwell is another example. Um, don't just totally ignore Monero because it's not Bitcoin, but in, instead try and try and you know build off of each other's research, which I think is super helpful for everybody involved. Yeah, cer- certainly. Greg, Greg and I are very friendly with the Monero people, um, and. It's funny you, you mentioned how, how formal and, and how much infrastructure is around scientific peer review, uh, because pretty much every classic area of science did start something like this, um, where there were individual uh, researchers who were discovering like, like mag- magnetism. You'd have like Faraday writing letters uh, to, uh, oh, I forget now who Faraday was, was communicating with. I'm going to say somebody who was 100 years later. But uh, <laughs> um Everything sort of starts out with a very small community where everybody knows each other and they're they're directly corresponding with each other, and that's how the peer review works. And in mathematics, we see this a lot as well. Um, even modern day mathematics, there, there are certain corners of esoteric subjects where before there are papers and journals, they they're just emailed to to various people. And then even even in the journals, some field is so narrow that there's only a dozen or so people in the entire field, and then everybody kind of knows who's who's writing stuff and. And who's reviewing it? Yeah, which I, I should mention for all the scientists listening. In mathematics, this is, is much less dangerous than it is in other fields because everything in math is sort of self self validating. We don't have a need for double blinding and stuff like that. Right. Uh, not not nearly as much. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, okay, so can we talk just a little more um, then about? I think there's one other kind of major distinction. I know we're we're getting a little long on time, so stop me if you need to go. But I know if if I'm running a Mimblewimble node. Um, let's say that it's implemented in some side chain on Bitcoin or something. And I, for my podcast, let's say I want to accept donations in um, Mimblewimble, or maybe I have a store that I want to accept payments in that. Um, in Bitcoin or in Monero or, or most everything else, I can very minimally publish an address that people can then just in their own time select the address and send things to. Um, but we've already talked about how Mimblewimble doesn't even have addresses. Um, but it also doesn't really have, as far as I understand, that same non-interactiveness. Um, so can we talk a little bit about, let's say we've got this going and I want to implement it in a store. How does that look like from the way that 
somebody buying from me uh, is going to interact with my server that's running the store and running my wallet and and to build this transaction. Sure. So let's use the store example. Suppose I'm buying something, I'm, I'm going to buy this for one coin. You might think, uh, just from my descriptions of Nimblewimble, that you could do this non-interactively in kind of a gross sense, where I make a transaction that doesn't quite balance because it needs an extra one coin output. The store makes a transaction that doesn't quite balance because it spends an extra coin that it shouldn't. And then those two transactions combine, they can combine non-interactively, and the result hits the blockchain as a fully balancing transaction. This is, in theory, possible. Um, there are two problems with it. The first is that this transaction is going to have two kernels on it. It will be twice as, as, uh, twice as big for future validators to deal with, which is not the end of the world. The other problem, much more seriously, is suppose I produce a transaction this way. Now, I have uh, one coin that I spent. I produced half a transaction and sent it to the store. The store finishes the transaction and publishes it to the blockchain. Now, the store adds its own one coin output, and that's just a uniformly random point. There is nothing about that that I can identify as belonging to the store. Meaning that if I buy this item, I pay for it, and the store later says that I didn't pay, and this, you know, a grocery store wouldn't do this, but a landlord might, right. I have no recourse. I can't go to the blockchain and say, hey, look, here is this transaction on the blockchain that has the store's address in it. Um, like, I clearly paid, and they received the money because that's what the blockchain says. Yeah. So, in Mimblewimble, the store and you, the payer, need to interactively produce a transaction. What they do is they make one transaction that fully balances, and the kernel will then be, I've been calling it a public key, it's actually a multi-signature public key, that both you and the store have to interact to sign. So your wallet will make a connection to the store's wallet, they'll produce this transaction and jointly sign the kernel. And it turns out that this joint signature itself, uh, and that will go in the blockchain, is evidence that you paid the store. So you, you retain this proof of payment, but at the expense of now requiring that your wallet be online, it connects to the store's wallet, which has to be online, uh, and they have to do a bit of a bit of a dance in order to to send the money. Yeah. Um. So so everything essentially everything in in Mimblewimble except highly trusted scenarios like like maybe you're sending some coins to your own cold wallet or something like that need to be interactive. Um. And and more than that. Even in the non-interactive scenario, it's not like the store can just make an address, which is some small, like, 30-byte thing, and throw it over the wall. The store has to make half of a transaction. Right. And that, and that half has to be unique per payment. You can't, you can't like, reuse transaction halves in Mimblewimble. The system will... Very bad things will happen if you do that. You're putting your own point at risk by doing that, even if it's technically allowed, which it shouldn't be. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so so it is much more involved. Transacting is much more involved in pretty much all scenarios. Um, although in the case when people are both online and they both have software that knows how to talk to each other, it um, things will work out. So maybe for common, simple, small payments, this is perfectly fine. But for a lot of the kind of store of value or, or massive value transfer applications that... Uh, that Bitcoin supports very easily or Monero supports very easily. These things are much more difficult and, and Mimblewimble. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then um, with all of that in mind, let's say I am running the store. Um, you know, if I'm running it with Bitcoin, I might have something that knows my Bitcoin addresses and is checking the blockchain to see if payments come in. 
And when it sees that a payment comes in, it says, okay, this is now a fully complete transaction. And it sends whatever the thing is that my store has. Um, and I can do that without having my private keys on the store. Is there any way to achieve this without having your kind of like basically to have the ability to receive payments with Mimblewimble, but not send payments so that you can have some type of like a storefront with a, a, a wallet running, but it's not one that you would have to worry about getting hacked and having your funds stolen. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Um, you can do this, but it's difficult. Okay. Um, so what you would do, and, and ultimately some, well, it can be zero, but some amount of money has to be controlled by the storefront. So what you can have is you have your cold wallet in some sort of vault, um, and I mentioned how when you're doing the non-interactive thing, uh, the cold wallet produces half of a transaction with a bunch of outputs. So suppose the cold wallet produces a whole bunch of one coin outputs um, and then maybe attaches some kernels to those. Um, now, the storefront is able to take those halves of transactions and it takes some that won't quite add up uh, to a full transaction. So for example, say the customer is paying uh, say like 10.1 coins, then the storefront might take 10 outputs that the cold wallet created that morning and, and shipped out, put those together, and then the store would add its own 0.1 to it to complete the transaction. Okay. And it would also complete the signature. Yeah. And so you can do stuff like that. And I haven't, like, like please don't go implement that protocol that I just <laughs> made up on the phone. Yeah. But, um, but you can do stuff like that. So it winds up being awkward. It requires your cold vault to produce a bunch of outputs in advance. And to, to make it very precise or efficient is, is quite involved. So I'm not going to say no, it's impossible. But in practice, it's much more difficult. And yeah. there are uh, certainly engineering and operational security problems that aren't yet solved around it. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, just kind of something that I had thought of. And I had never seen anybody really talk about it. So I figured you would be the one to know. Um, so, okay, well then there's kind of like one last aspect and we might not have a ton of time to talk about it, but, um, all of this is interesting because it enables these like peer to peer payments that are private and such. Um, but Mimblewimble itself doesn't, as far as I understand, doesn't really allow scripts. Um, but you have come up with a way that things like multi-signature or things like, um, you know, maybe time-locked contracts, I'm not sure, I'm just throwing something out there, um, might still be possible. And then building off of that, you've already mentioned confidential assets um, in regards to just normal confidential transactions, but perhaps also that might be possible with Mimblewimble as well. Um, And so I've heard people talk about uh, using a Mimblewimble chain to then have pegged assets that might peg to Bitcoin or peg to Monero or peg to Litecoin or whatever, and sort of creating this uh, secondary token on the ch- channel. I'm just sort of throwing a bunch of terms out at you because this is kind of getting to the edge of what I fully understand about the pl- of the protocol. But can you talk a little more about some of these um, more complex type of interactions beyond just simple payments? Um, sure. So unfortunately, I've only got two or three minutes for you. Okay. Um, I, I'd like to explore these in more depth, and, and perhaps I could come back another time That'd to talk great. about yeah. this, this, this more technological uh, stuff. But so first of all, confidential assets is uh, 
completely compatible with immovable. I mentioned back when I was talking about the history, confidential asset tweaks this thing we call the second generator. Mimblewimble tweaks this thing we call the blinding key. And those are separate things. You can tweak them both. And then you have Mimblewimble plus assets, basically. So you can have a blockchain that supports multiple different asset types that is still a Mimblewimble blockchain. And then from there, it's a small but quite involved step to have a sidechain that supports multiple different currencies all being pegged in from various places. And now these pegins will need to have some sort of proof of validity on other blockchains. And that's a, that's a very involved proof. And that won't be able to be pruned in the same way that ordinary Mimblewimble transactions are. But the result is that you've got a blockchain that has a very compressible, very scalable Mimblewimble chain. And then kind of attached to it, it's got this parallel blockchain or an extension block, if you want, um, tracking pegins and pegouts from various other currencies. And the whole thing kind of fits together quite nicely. Uh, and I, I've given a high-level description of this in a mailing list post about uh, a year ago of how you might do this with Grin. Um, as far as script with scripts, this is really the more exciting thing. Um, and, and I hope that I can talk about it sometime when I have a little more time. What this lets you do is attach more elaborate conditions to transaction uh, signing than just everybody involved signed it. So as a quick example, um, you can do atomic swaps with this. So what we can do is suppose I'm sending you money um, and I want to receive some Bitcoins in exchange for it. Um, and I, we want to do an atomic swap. I'm trying to send you these Mimblewimble coins. You're trying to send me uh, some, some Bitcoin. What I want is that as soon as I sign to give you your money, somehow I also receive my money. And you want the same thing. So the problem is, of course, which one of us is going to go first and which is going to be left holding the bag. <laughs> and the way that you do this in uh, a normal, uh, normal, in something like Bitcoin that supports hash pre-images is you have some sort of hash challenge where nobody can take their money but by, except by revealing the pre-image to some cryptographic hash. And so the first person to do it reveals the pre-image and the other person just copies the pre-image off the other blockchain. And that way, as soon as one transaction is doable, the other one automatically is, because there's some secret data that's exchanged using the blockchain. Monero can't do this, because Monero doesn't have scripts, and Mimblewimble certainly can't do this, because Mimblewimble doesn't have scripts. But there is a way, by tweaking signatures, that we can achieve the same effect. And what that is, is essentially, we produce a multi-signature on our transaction. So, so I'll put up some coins that you and I both need to sign, in order for you to take. You'll put up some coins that you and I both need to sign on the Bitcoin side for me to take. And now, before I uh, sign to give you some coins, I ask you to sign both sides, the part giving you coins and the part taking the coins, but don't tell me the signatures. You subtract them. You give me the difference of the signatures. And this really is the subtraction that, that you dealt with in grade school. Yeah. Um, you give me that through a little bit of crypto magic, not like, like grade nine linear algebra, I subtract the two verification equations, I, I can prove that this is a different of two valid signatures, even though I don't know the signatures. At that point, I sign to give you your coins. And now I sign the blockchain demand, we both sign, so you sign to take your coins, I take your signature, add the difference that you gave me, it, it cancels out, just like before, yeah. um, and what I'm left with is a signature giving me coins. So now your signature is what communicated to me the extra data that I needed. 
in order to take my coins, and it replaces a hash preimage. And we can do much more powerful things with this primitive. You can actually attach almost arbitrary data to signatures using tricks like this. And what's very cool about this is that it works even on a blockchain without scripts. So you can do this on Monero. You can do this uh, on a Mimblewimble chain with the kernel signatures. You can do it in Bitcoin. Uh, well, you will be able to soon. Soon, meaning hopefully in the next 12 months. Everything's slow on Bitcoin. Sure. Um, uh, with something we call Schnorr signatures. And you don't need consensus support for it. You don't need any fancy features. And the result also doesn't look remarkable. What hits the blockchain is just an ordinary signature. That's no different from any other signature. So it's much better for privacy and for fungibility because now nobody can see that something funny is going on with these transactions, that they're somehow linked to other blockchains or anything like that. And you also get a scalability benefit because now validators don't have to learn the details of this comp the complicated contract that you set up. All they see are signatures and they say, I know how to validate signatures. I'll do that. And that's what script the script is. Um, and that you can use to build atomic swaps. You can use it to build kind of lightning channels. You can use it to do zero knowledge continuous payments, all these kind of neat things that uh, that have been coming out over the last few years, you can do with these scriptless scripts. Awesome. Okay, well, I, I don't want to hold you up any longer. One last really quick question. There's a coin that's trying to implement this. I guess it's going to be the first Mimblewimble implementation called Grin. Um, are you working on that at all, or are you just working on all the protocol stuff? Uh, neither. So I'm certainly not contributing code or, or really pushing the project forward in any way. Um, I'm not even following it that closely anymore uh, because it's moving so quickly. So this is uh, run by a whole bunch of other Harry Potter characters, yeah. in particular Ignatius and Antioch Peveril, the two Peveril brothers from the Deathly Hollows. Um, and so I, I, I keep an eye on what they're doing in the same way that I communicate with Monero just on the research front and try to give them some cryptographic guidance. But... Uh, but certainly they're, they're moving much faster than I can keep up with. Uh, and it does seem like they're going to be the, the first real-life instantiation of Mimblewimble that people can play with and use. Um, except possibly, 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 uh, Blockstream's Elements, the Elements project, uh, which was the first a showcase of CT, this actually supports Mimblewimble, and it has since day one, because Mimblewimble is just CT without scripts, right? Yeah. But it doesn't, it doesn't have wallet support and it doesn't have like a node that knows how to do the compaction and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So in, in theory, somebody could go write a client for, for Elements today um, and, and have Mimblewimble going. And that might be a faster way to get deployment of the basic idea. But, uh, but Grin is certainly the first independent project to be, be taking this idea and running with it. Interesting. Okay, well then, is there any way, if, if anybody wanted to get in touch with you about all this, what's the best way to kind of get in touch and, and chat? Uh, well, I'm always on IRC, on Freenode. My handle is Andy Toshi. Um, and you can email me. You can uh, so say, uh, I don't know, Grindelwald at WPSoftware.net. Okay. Anything, anything at WPSoftware.net will, will eventually reach me <laughs> um, as well. Okay, there are some that I blacklisted for spam reasons, so, so okay. I mean, don't make something up. But let's, let's say Mike's Monero podcast at WPSoftware.net. Okay, well, yeah, thank you for, for chatting with me, and I would love to chat again sometime, uh, in maybe a couple of months down the road when all of this has fleshed itself out a little more. Um, and, uh, and otherwise, I'll let you get going. All right, yeah, I'm uh, afraid I've got to run, so, so thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Have a good one. Yep, you too. Okay. Well, I definitely learned quite a bit there. I hope you all found that as interesting and educational as I did. 
Um, if anybody wants to dive deeper into Mimblewimble, go to the page that Andrew mentioned in the show, Mimblewimble.cash. I just went back to it for the first time in a while, and it has links to uh, all the various papers that have been written about Mimblewimble, as well as the Mimblewimble mailing list and uh, other discussion places. Um, so you should be able to find any information you want by going through that site. If anybody wants to hear more of our episodes um, or read a transcript from today's show, check out our website, moneromonitor.com, or just look for our show in whatever your favorite podcast app is. I uh, just want to also say that this show's run entirely on donations. We don't do any advertising or anything like that. Um, and so if you enjoyed the show, please consider donating on our website. Y'all can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Monero Monitor. And uh, with that, have a great day, everybody. Mm-hmm.